0: You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Acus Amplified, from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and
1: outreach.
2: Hi, everybody. You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. I'm Kim Tucker. I'm an arthroplasty surgeon from Tucson, Arizona, and I'm joined here by my colleagues from the Journal of Arthroplasties media team. I'm Meg Marsh brown I'm an arthroplasty surgeon in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
3: And I'm Peter Gold. I'm a joint replacement surgeon in Denver, Colorado.
2: We are very excited to introduce you to our two expert guests today who will be going through the articles with us and providing some perspective. First, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Adam Rana. Dr. Rana is an orthopedic arthroplasty surgeon in Portland, Maine. He performed his orthopedic surgery residency at Boston University and his arthroplasty fellowship at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He currently serves as the director of the Arthroplasty Center at Maine Medical Center. He serves as the chair of the Advocacy Committee with AUKUS, membership chair with the Eastern Orthopedic Association, and is the president of the Maine State Orthopedic Society.
1: Thank you, Kim, Meg, and Peter for hosting Max and I on this second round of The Cut. Glad to be here.
2: Thanks. We're also happy to be joined by Dr. Max Courtney for today's episode. Dr. Courtney completed his internship and residency at the University of Pennsylvania and then pursued fellowship training in adult recon at Rush University. Dr. Courtney completed a health policy fellowship with the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons and currently serves on the AUKUS Advocacy Committee as vice chair.
0: Thanks again, Kim, for having me, Megan, Peter, for setting this all up. Looking
3: forward to our conversation.
2: Absolutely. And so with that, let's dive right into the first paper.
3: So the first paper is titled Hospital Readmissions After Total Joint Arthroplasty, An Updated Analysis and Implications for Value-Based Care. This is a study out of Baylor. The goal of the study was to look at reasons for 30-day readmissions following total joint arthroplasty. This is a NISQIP database study that looked at 367,199 total knee and total hip patients from 2011 to 2018. The 30-day readmissions over that time went down from 4.5% to 3.3%. The leading medical complications that led to readmissions were circulatory system issues like PE, AFib, flutter, and CHF, abnormal lab values like anemia and hyponatremia, and digestive system issues like GI bleeding, ileus, and obstructions. Surgical complications were reasons for readmission 38% of the time for total knee and 51% of the time for total hip. The most common was surgical site infection or wound disruption, second was VTE. For total hip replacements, the third most common was for prosthetic complications like dislocation and fractures. And for total knee, the third most common was for pain or hematoma. And they concluded that half of total knees and about one third of total hip re were due to medical complications, and this could penalize surgeons in a value-based care model. So you know, overall, I think this is a pretty nice broad study And it gives us a good snapshot of what's going on from 2011 to 2018 within the arthroplasty community, specifically looking at bundled programs like CJR and BPCI. And those things are now seemingly starting to come to an end. You know, both Max and and Adam, you guys were a part of these initial and now ongoing conversations with both CMS and CMMI around value-based care. Can you guys give our listeners uh, and us your kind of insider perspective on those conversations, you know, what's been going on in the background? How did all this get started? Where did all of it kind of get derailed? And what are the positives and negatives that we're looking at today and moving forward?
1: I'll start off here, Peter. Thanks for uh, selecting this article. I think it highlights some of the successes that we've had in the arthroplasty community over the course of the past decade as orthopedic surgeons, as arthroplasty surgeons have engaged different value-based platforms. So, you know, If we back up to a decade ago, CMS was looking at ways to control costs, and they were looking at ways to transition from a fee-for-service model to more of a bundled payment or alternative payment model where you incentivize for value as opposed to quantity. And so programs were structured by CMS through CMMI, or Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovations, and they developed some programs that you mentioned. So the first alternative payment model program or bundled payment program was BPCI, and it looked at the main platform was looking at the date from surgery to 90 days after surgery, the global period, and looking at the episode of care during that period. And arthroplasty surgeons engaged that platform, followed by CJR, which was not a voluntary, but an involuntary program that was rolled out in 2017. Arthroplasty surgeons gauged these bundled payment programs, over 50% of surgeons participated in them and did a great job of identifying ways to generate value and to improve quality. And one way to do that was really looking at the episode of care and doing a lot of pre-optimization work and education for getting patients ready for surgery. That was addressing modifiable risk factors, such as diabetes, obesity, smoking, narcotic usage, and preparing patients for surgery. And in doing this, arthroplasty surgeons were successful at having fewer complications and readmissions on the backside as evidenced by the paper that you've pulled. The second piece of the pre-optimization work, or another piece of the pre-optimization work that was being done also included getting patients to home as opposed to rehab facilities, which I think we'll talk about in a, a future article. But the engagement participation from arthroplasty surgeons has been extremely successful over the course of the past decade, really controlling costs, reducing the overall cost of care, but most importantly, improving the quality of care through reducing complications and readmissions. So, I know Max has a lot of papers uh, that he's been a part of to demonstrate objectively the successes of this engagement.
0: Sure. And, and just to kind of give you our context for bundled payments and how it ties into this paper, we're on the forefront of value based care. We were in BPCI when it first started. We got in in 2015, a couple of years out after it was rolled out. And bundled payments early on were very successful. You were tied to your own institution's historical performance over the last three years. That was the formula. And if you saw in this study, they reduced the readmissions from four and a half to three and a half percent over the the seven years that they looked in the study. And we had similar numbers, right? And everybody across the country did. I tell stories to even my patients, like I had some gray hair on my beard. And when I was a resident a dozen years ago, and everybody spent three to four days in the hospital and everybody went to rehab and everybody got home health, and now we don't do that anymore because we, as arthroplasty surgeons, have done a great job, as Adam talked about, all of our pre-optimization pathways, our rapid recovery protocols. So we were able, we were very, very successful from 2015 to 2018 in BPCI when it first started. And then what happened, right? There's, there's an asymptote. You, you can only get your readmission rate so low. And that's really what this paper showed. Right. Half of all the readmissions were for medical reasons, for knees. I don't think any of us are surprised at this finding. right? And with Medicare patients, this, the NISQIP database looks at all comers. With Medicare patients, our readmission rate was between 6 and 7%, which is still really, really, really good. But you can only get your readmissions so low. Medicare patients, they're older, they're vulnerable, they are more likely to fall, they're more likely to have urinary tract infections and be admitted for all these other medical issues that this paper talks about. And we as orthopedic surgeons really shouldn't be penalized for it. So because our target price or the amount of money that Medicare was giving us to budget for a 90-day of episode of care kept going down, right? We went from winners to losers. And then when BPCI Advanced started, we dropped out after the first year. I know Carolinas did as well. A lot of other large medical groups dropped out because the formula is not sustainable. And maybe Adam can kind of talk about, where do you kind of see bundle payments going? You've met with CMS a lot. As far as episode of care bundles, what do you think is going to be happening with them in the next decade or so?
1: So as Max highlighted, this unfortunately has been a race to the bottom for arthroplasty surgeons and participation. So as the target price has been ratcheted down, I mean, the article highlights Rich Iorio's experience at NYU where their initial target price was $35,000. And by the end of the participation it dropped down to $22,000. And it's difficult for institutions uh, like his and like other institutions like Max mentioned to participate in, you know, in a sustainable manner here. So we, Aukus Leadership Advocacy have met with CMS. We've met with CMMI and had discussions and um as you mentioned, Peter, EPCIA is coming to a close, and CJR in a few years is coming to a close. And so this year, there is a request for information that CMMI is placing for input onto next generation bundles. And they're seeking input from participants, and there really are no other participants that have been more targeted than arthroplasty surgeons. And so our experience over the last decade can provide insight that the key is to create a sustainable model. Some of the things that CMS is considering is instead of a bundled payment where you look at the episode of care to 90 days afterwards, is to look at a longitudinal bundle or a population health bundle where you look at the management of musculoskeletal health instead of the acute episode. So from when the time somebody is diagnosed with arthritis throughout the managements and the theoretic potential in this type of bundle is significant because as we're aware, and when you look at studies that are out there, the management of arthritis you know, for the hip and knee can be all over the board. There are clinical practice guidelines that Ocus and the Academy have put together for best practices for managing arthritis. However, when you actually look at how arthritis is managed, there's a lot of management that does not follow clinical practice guidelines. And so there is significant potential savings when one looks at a longitudinal bundle. And Adam, these aren't new concepts, right? I mean, Kevin's done some work
0: with this down at UT Austin. Bolo at Duke has done some work with some of the population health stuff. I mean, it seems like it seems like a good idea, right? You, you indicate people who are supposed to get surgery. What do you kind of see the problems with who's the gatekeeper, who's kind of making the calls for who gets an injection and who gets an operation?
1: So that's exactly it, Max, is, you know, from AUKUS's perspective, we are big believers that it needs to be the specialist that leads this care. It can't be anyone aside from the specialist. And that doesn't mean that Max is going to be sitting there saying this individual gets a cortisone injection. This person needs to go to weight and wellness. But the point is you develop a team that's, as Max mentioned, Kevin Bozik out at UT Austin has put together this integrated practice unit team that consists of different players, including nurses, therapists the psychologists that help with uh, coping mechanisms for a lot of these patients, but there's a team that gets developed. And, you know, when you think about the team, it's not that different from the team that's gotten built from the acute care episode. So that team just gets multiplied out. But, you know, to Max's point and question, it needs to be the orthopedic specialist that leads this type of bundle. So that's one of the potentials.
2: Do you think this would get rid of the uh, primary care physicians ordering MRIs on 82 year olds potentially?
1: So that's, thank you, Kim. That's an important part of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Uh, You know, I think all of us have not anecdotal stories, but numerous stories uh, every day in the office where patients come in, they've gotten MRIs after a plain film demonstrates, you know, significant arthritis. They've had not just cortisone, they've had visco supplementation, they've had PRP injections, they've had multiple PRP injections, and can go through the gamut of measures that some folks will have gone through before they reach the arthroplasty surgeons. So that, that is one area of potential that you know, we've spoken to CMS about. The issue, though, is, is not everybody has the infrastructure that exists at these large institutions, and CMS is aware of that. You know, one of the nice things is, is when we speak to CMS and CMMI, they do reference Dr. Bozick's program as a best in class program out there that other specialties can follow. But they're very cognizant of the fact that, you know, the practitioner in rural Maine can't structure such a, a longitudinal program. So this would be something that wouldn't be mandatory like CJR, where they say, okay, providers in this area need to set this up. But this is the next iteration on that value proposition, because the reality is, is CMS has announced that by 2030 they want 100% of participants being under a alternative payment model. So you know they are looking at these different programs that are out there. What what I do get
0: weary about, I, I right, CMS's ultimate goal. It doesn't remember. Doesn't matter which party is in office controlling CMS. Right is to save money. And I worry about rationing care, boards determining who gets surgery and who doesn't, whether it's medical comorbidities, social situations, body mass index, how much conservative treatment you've had. And we've dealt with this with a lot of the prior authorization stuff, which you could do a whole nother podcast on with the commercial payers because what they're trying to do is is ration care. So whatever ends up happening, and again, we at AUKUS need to be at the forefront. We can't go to CMS and say, we're against your plan because of your point, right? If they want everybody in a value-based care model by 2030, they're going to have every participant in a value-based care model by 2030. And we, we need a seat at the table to be able to negotiate the terms of that value-based care model because we as the surgeons, right, they're our patients. So we're, we're going to be the, the best best equipped to be helping them make those decisions.
1: No, well said. Mark. The last thing I would just point out is you know, the other area that they're looking into or that is on our radar is the fact that the target price has dropped down to sort of a break-even level or even below a break-even level. One thought is that they'll then fold in that episode of care into an ACO and have primary care specialists oversee the overall bundle. And that is something that arthroplasty surgeons, we at AUKUS are very cognizant of and will do as much advocating for our membership uh, as possible. Because at the end of the day, you know what our goal is from the advocacy group is to maintain quality of care, maintain access for our patients, and support our membership. So if arthroplasty, gets $500 reimbursement for a procedure and nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to go into arthroplasty. We've lost out. So we need folks like Max, like Peter, like Meg, like Kim and all the folks in the AG and the health policy fellows to really understand the policy aspect of our profession and engage with lawmakers, with CMS to alert them to the fact that quality and access can be jeopardized. here.
4: The point you were making before, Dr. Rana, about Bosick's program at UT, Dr. Bosick and Dr. Kading. I did my fellowship down there. I was very lucky to have that experience, and I think the more fellows we can get going through that program, just to see, to your point, that alternate way, it is an amazing experience to get to work and just see the different patient experience that that poses. But I can also say now, to your exact point, I work in Albuquerque, which is a major city but in a very rural state and trying to now recreate and reproduce those things is very very difficult in a very resource limited area even though we are a major city for the state we are not on the scale of even austin is a pretty small city by texas standards so it's very difficult to reproduce these it's very challenging and the question that y'all already addressed, but that I had written down reading this was you know exactly how do we keep tertiary referral centers? How do we keep universities and other places from getting penalized? That was another topic that Dr. Bozick speaks often on is the difference between risk stratification and risk mitigation. And how do we actually make it keep access open and addressing the fact that access alone doesn't necessarily provide value. So that's one of our issues in the state is just pop- popping open an arthroplasty shop in a resource-limited state doesn't necessarily provide good value to our patients here.
0: Right. And that's a huge deal. And Peter had a good paper on a lot of the socioeconomic and racial disparities that he published in CORE uh, about a year and a half, two years ago when he was a fellow. But Dr. Bozick's done a great job with using his leadership platform to be able to work with CMS. They do have a novel risk adjustment formula in BPCIA, it is not the most sophisticated because they're relying on billing codes, right? So they're relying on the hospital documenting how many medical comorbidities and what their Charleston, Alex Howes, all the, the comorbidity scores that they're trying to put in. And we know that that data is not very accurate either. So they're aware of that. They are, are certainly working on that. And we have voiced a lot of concerns. The one win we did get in the on the equity piece Are there's gonna be carve outs for patients who are dual eligible. So those who have Medicare and Medicaid will get a bump in reimbursement. And that's one thing that Adam and the AUKUS presidential line have worked hard at to get through too.
1: Yeah, no, that's uh, well said, Max. And you know, Meg, you bring up the, the point where that work that Max is referring to, where CMS agreed to have an adjustment for dual eligible Medicare, Medicaid patients That was a result of work that was done three, four years ago with consistent messaging to CMS that, look, you need to have risk adjustment built into these models. So the sort of battles or the discussions that we have now, we don't see the results oftentimes right away. You see them two, three, four years down the road. And that was an perfect example and I, I think that the
0: takeaway for some of the listeners too right is like everyone thinks where i think we're going to get on the medicare cuts in a different paper right everyone thinks that oh we're, we're wasting our time doing all this advocacy stuff all these hill visits where we go once a year and and try to get congressional lawmakers and the fundraisers that you're throwing with the aos pack and it doesn't result in anything and we end up losing anyway because the hospitals and the insurance companies are bigger than we are. But it's these small wins like this that you do have to recognize. I mean, think our work is making a difference. People are listening to us. It might not seem like it it in real time. But as Adam said, right, this is conversations and and research we were doing three and four years ago.
4: I have a question about that, too, just in real quick in terms of lead time. One of the other things I noticed about this paper, those samples from 2011 to 2018, And we've changed so much of our optimization process in just the last three years because we had to in response to pressures from COVID and sort of keeping arthroplasty service lines open. In terms of kind of bringing our new issues to the Hill, do we have data from the last three years? Do you think that what we are producing now is drastically different in the outcomes we're seeing now with 80 something percent of arthroplasty surgeons now doing or outpatient total joints compared to even in 2017, it was, you know, about half that. Will that change drastically how we're going to advocate for and sort of address these issues coming out of the pandemic?
1: Well, you know, we always have updated data and studies thanks to AUKUS membership that really provides us with their respective experiences uh, at their institutions and their larger multi-center studies. And how we use that data, you know, we have put together and organized with uh, the help of health policy fellows uh, in years past, sort of studies, papers that are out there that deal with different advocacy issues so that when a certain topic comes up, whether it's payment reform, whether it's prior authorization, whether it's you know alternative payment models, we have a sort of bibliography of data and information that we can then you know, summarize and, and have discussions with CMS and congressional members to help get our points across.
0: And NISQIP, the data lag, these are administrative database studies. They're going to lag a year or two behind. We certainly have, to your point, newer data with more and more patients being done as in the outpatient setting, especially which Medicare patients can safely be done in an outpatient setting because that's important too. And there, there are plenty of studies on that that have come out.
3: Let's move on to the second paper. So, the second paper is entitled Medicare Payments to Hospitals and Physicians for Total Hip and Knee Arthroplasties Have Declined from 2009 to 2019. This is out of University Hospital in Cleveland. The goal of the study was to see the trend in Medicare payments to hospitals and to surgeons for both primary total hip and total knee. They looked at 331,721 total hip replacements, and 742,476 total knees. They looked at the MedPAR, which is the Medicare Provider Analysis and Review Limited data set from 2009, 2014, and then 2019. And they identified uh, for inflation due price adjustment. They looked at total Medicare payments, total hospital reimbursements, and then physician fee. So from 2009 to 2019, total hip replacements, Medicare payments declined by 11.5%. Total hospital reimbursements, which is Medicare payments plus all copays, pays declined by 6.5%. For total needs, Medicare payments declined 13.4%, and total hospital reimbursements declined by 7.7%, and surgeon fees declined during that time 13.1% for total hip and 18.9% for total needs. So they concluded that in the last decade, Medicare reimbursements have declined even more for surgeon fees potentially undercutting the viability of performing total joint arthroplasty on Medicare patients. So you know, Adam and Max, I know both you guys were very recently in DC talking about this specific topic with our representatives. So can you kind of fill us in a little bit more on how those conversations went and you know what does kind of all this really mean for us? I'll start.
0: I mean, you look at the data here, and again, this is an important study to get out, but this paper stopped looking at the Medicare data in 2019, and a lot has changed in the last four years, right? We've had cuts, RVU cuts to both hip and knee replacements starting in 2020. We've had a lot of cuts, and Adam can get into some of these specific points with the uh, Medicare physician fee schedule and statutory cuts that are built in each year as part of the budget formula. So the numbers are even worse for physician payments. Hospital payments actually went up 5% for total hip and knee replacement last year. So maybe not keeping up with inflation, but at least it went up, whereas the surgeon payments are declining. So maybe, Adam, can you give us a summary on, we, there's so much to talk about with this. We, we can talk about the Ruck review. You can talk about the, maybe walk us through that first. And then we can talk about the different statutory cuts that have been built in over the last few years.
2: I'd also like to interject here that my 11 year old has a very robust sense of justice, and I'd like to quote that he would probably say, "That's not fair."
1: <laughs> we can bring your 11 year old down to DC, Kim, and uh, he's cute. I mean, yeah.
2: <laughs> he'd help.
1: So Max brings up the multifaceted points here that uh, that he highlights. You know, so one one point he brings up is the Rock and. One of the really unfortunate situations that arose in 2019 was a uh, unspecified party approached CMS to ask for a revaluation among other codes, hip and knee arthroplasty. They looked at seven high volume codes and that undisclosed recipient was a payer, Anthem. And CMS agreed to a reevaluation, even though the revaluation from hip and knee arthroplasty had just been Five years prior. So, this triggered a RUC review. Now, RUC review, uh, the RUC is the body that determines work RVUs for every procedure that's out there. And it's a 32 person committee that oversees how different procedures get reimbursed. And so, the RUC took this up. And so, part of the process is to survey membership. And so ACA said, Well, we've engaged in all these alternative payment models. We've done all this work for pre optimizing our patients before surgery. That needs to be included in this work RVU calculation because the work RVU calculation is looking at the surgery, the intensity, the amount of time for the procedure, and then the 90 day global period. And there's only a small 40 minute period that's devoted to the pre-optimization work. And we said that has significantly changed over the course of the past number of years. And the, the basis for the argument was that in bariatric surgery and in vascular surgery, those specialties survey their membership with a question devoted to pre-optimization work. But the RUC said, no, We're not going to allow that pre-optimization question to be included in the survey. We're just going to let you survey your membership based on, you know, the standard survey that had been done. So the standard survey gets done and the existing work RVU for hip and knee arthroplasty was 20.7 work RVUs. The 25th percentile for the responses for AUKUS members was 21, and the RUC Even with this data, I mean, the 50th percentile was 25 work RVUs. Even with this data, elected to recommend to CMS that the work RVU should be reduced down to 19.6, not saying that work is being done, but kind of disregarding that and also disregarding the survey to a certain extent. And they presented CMS with their recommendation of 19, you know, reducing the work RVU by 3.5% down to 19.6. AUKUS leadership lobbied both the RUC and CMS to say, you know, we're we're doing this work. Both the RUC and CMS acknowledged the work was being done, but CMS accepted that reduction. So that was very, obviously, as Kim's 11-year-old would say, unfair. And this is a disagreement that really AUKUS pursued with the leadership of Dr. Hutch Huddleston and Chick Yates uh, and the Advocacy Committee to continue to press this issue. And when we talk about wins, this is an example of an advocacy win, because even though we did see a cut that went into effect in 2021, we were able to convince CMS and the CPT assistant published a uh, report in November of this past year, an article endorsing the introduction of four CPT codes that are principal care management codes that can be used by physicians, qualified health professionals, such as NPs, PAs, along with our clinical staff, such as the RNs and MAs, to account for the pre-optimization work that we know is being done.
2: Adam, is there anywhere on the AUKUS website where it explains these codes and like how to use them?
1: So great question, Kim. There was a webinar that was hosted by the AOS that Frank Voss, Bill Heiner, and Steve Engstrom uh, led back in February. The recording, I believe, is on AOS's website. We're in the midst of working together. We have a team that includes Max, Steve, Dr. Engstrom out of Nashville, and one of the health policy fellows. And we're Working to put together. You're leaving him off. He's not just one he, of the he, health policy fellows. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the anonymous.
2: Peter, <laughs> no, no
1: slight, Peter, you're on that as well. So, yeah, we're putting the, this group together to a look at our respective experiences at our institutions of submitting these codes and getting reimbursed for the codes and the success rate there because. Unfortunately, this is just for Medicare patients as of now. This does not apply to commercial payers. So this is an advocacy win. We have to see that we are able to collect, not just bill and submit the codes, but actually collect for the codes.
0: Bottom line, Adam, like you went through a lot of math and numbers there, right? We get hosed by the rock. We took a 5% cut going into 2021. We get a small advocacy win to get our one rvu back for a lot of the pre-optimization work that we're doing with these new principal care management codes but then we had another fight that we're going through and it's not just us in arthroplasty but this is all of the house of medicine that's involved with this so in 2021 the primary care doctors have been lobbying very hard and they are grossly underpaid and underappreciated in this country to be able to upcode and, and value more of their office visits, right? And we all use the same codes for our office visits, whether you're a surgeon or a primary care doctor or a pediatrician. And CMS relaxed a lot of the documentation requirements, which is great, so you no longer needed to hit all your review of systems points and your physical exam points. So the primary care doctors were able to get a little bit more for doing level four and level five office visits based upon their medical decision-making. And all of us say, yes, that's a, that's a great idea. Our primary care doctors are grossly underpaid and underappreciated in this country. But then what we realized at the end of the year, right, all of the, the Medicare fee schedule by statute in Congress is has to be cost neutral. And there's no inflation adjustments with that. So as everybody got to upcode some of their office visits, right, CMS, came back and said, okay, well, instead of going back to the rock and picking a few codes to drop, we're just going to cut the conversion factor, which is the dollar per RVU that they pay across the board, across all specialties. Can you kind of walk us through the last two years, what AUKUS has been trying to do to, to help with that too?
1: That's the other piece of the equation. So and actually one thing before I get into that, Max touched on this. One of the rubs that we also had was just to get back to this. So the RUC accepted below 20th percentile from AUKUS's survey for hip and knee arthroplasty, but for the clinic visit codes for primary care, those were taken at the 50th percentile from the survey that primary care physicians submitted to the RUC. So there's this differential of why isn't there more transparency is if you're going to ask the specialists to place a survey, how do you determine when you take the 50th percentile from the survey and when you take less than a 20th percentile from the survey? So that's just a, a side. Can to- you
2: explain who's on the rock, too? I mean, are these physicians? Is it healthcare policymakers? How, it's a, what is it's that? A, it,
0: it's a brilliant idea, actually. Right. So CMS steps aside and is like, you know what? We shouldn't get in the weeds with physician payments, even though they do. But on the surface, they say, OK, well, we're going to let the AMA take care of this. So each seat on the ruck is based upon your specialties percentage membership in the AMA. So as you would expect, there's a lot of primary care physicians, internal medicines, and their subspecialists who are very involved in the AMA. It's not representative of patient population or types of procedures or number of overall physicians it's based upon your specialties percentage in the AMA. And we do have one representative. The AOS has one representative on the rock of the 36 seats, Adam.
1: So yeah, I think 32 or 36. Yeah. So yeah, orthopedics has one seat on the uh, rock currently. So
4: are we the only people who have experienced this kind of significant backlog? Like I, I think probably a lot of our members and Perhaps the average AUKUS member asks a lot, why did we agree to participate in these value-based healthcare programs if we're just kind of, as you said before, racing to the bottom? We weren't the only people kind of leashed into this initially. I mean, I'm thinking about like an interventional cardiology. Are we the only people seeing this kind of downturn or are any of the other procedural codes that were initially included in that top 25 procedures or whatever that were in BBCI one and two, also seeing this? And if so, I mean, this is probably a little out there to some, but you know, collective bargaining works for everybody else. How are we working with other procedural subspecialties or, you know, to kind of have a more powerful unified voice? I think we all end up kind of in our silos, but if we're all facing the same thing.
1: So it's a great question, Meg. There's a bunch of questions in there. So the the sort of General principle is there's a pie and that pie doesn't increase or decrease. So since primary care codes for office well all office visit codes went up, that has to come from somewhere else. So oftentimes that will come from, there's cognitive and and proceduralists. And so if cognitive codes get weighted a little more, then that comes from proceduralist codes. So it's really a pie. Talking about collective bargaining, There are laws against unionizing, so that is something that's, you know, AUKUS does have a legal counsel. Epstein-Baker Green, that provides, you know, legal counsel for AUKUS on these matters. In terms of- I
0: I, I don't think, just to chime in there, I mean, we're not all going to collectively organize to drop out of Medicare, right? We still want to take care of patients. But on the, I'll put my Academy PAC board hat on. The, the academy, the AOS PAC does work very, very closely with the other medical associations and they have a loose affiliation called MedPAC. So they set up luncheons, they support similar candidates. I've gone down to DC to have docs on the mall days. The anesthesiologists are very, very active. The dermatologists are very, very active. They're probably the two next to us. The dentists are actually very, very active too. So we kind of agree on a scope of issues So there is joint lobbying going on, but not collective bargaining per
1: se. The question of partnering with other specialties. So first off, in terms of how arthroplasty was focused on these alternative payment models, arthroplasty was the only surgery, hip and knee arthroplasty, that was involuntary, so mandatory. So CGR is the only mandatory payment program that's out there that is mandatory. The other ones the BPCI and BPCIA were voluntary. So we are do fall in this use sort of unique category. And there have been some discussions with cardiothoracic surgeons Dr. Ayorio was involved in that a couple of years ago. We're all facing as proceduralists in that proceduralist category I would say continued down-ratching pressures across the board from a reimbursement perspective.
2: I'm a little offended by those titles of cognitive versus proceduralist too by the way. <laughs> the cognitive i mean i think we we think about stuff too
0: yeah we get and we get we get we get knocked by the other specialists i mean we, yeah. we do think about stuff right the indications and and i also tell we tell our patients we put up primary care hat on too right we're screening absolutely. for anemia glycemic control weight loss counseling and, and that's the stuff that absolutely that, that we've been working hard to get
2: And when we have patients nowadays who can't even get into their primary care offices, come to see us about all of this stuff. I don't know if you guys have been experiencing that, but I've been experiencing more and more patients coming in just for, you know, their whatever it would be that their primary care doc would normally take care of. So we're wearing those hats too. I think we should probably move on to the third paper if that's all right, and Meg's going to give us a presentation on that. Yeah. So. Third paper, the last paper
4: we're going to talk about today is entitled Skilled Nursing Facility Following Hip Fracture Arthroplasty Diminishes Care Value. So this is a paper out of NYU. The goal was to look at the value comparing discharge to SNF versus with home health care in elderly patients after femoral neck fracture that were treated with either hemiarthroplasty or total hip arthroplasty. The study was collected from 2018 to 2020, and they collected 192 patients, again, that were either treated with total hip arthroplasty or hemi, then Of these patients, 69% were discharged to SNF and 31% were discharged home with home health. They found in their results, there was no difference in inpatient complications, ICU admissions, or 30 to 90 day readmissions. But obviously as we all, especially in the arthroplasty community are aware, SNFs do cost more. So there was a lower risk assessment, obviously for patients uh, and a prediction tool score was associated with a discharge to SNF. And one thing as well that, I noted the group that went to SNF was much more predominantly received a hemiarthroplasty. The group that was discharged home it was about two thirds, one third hemi versus total hip arthroplasty as well. But ultimately, they concluded that discharge home health may be more cost effective without increasing the risk of readmission when it's medically appropriate. My kind of biggest quibble with the study was in that the groups are not really well matched. The SNF group again was kind of highly favoring patients who had hemiarthroplasty versus home health. More likely to have had a total hip, and I think we all can agree in general, sickle patients are typically indicated for hemis. So for me, it's a little bit hard to kind of tease out based on selection bias how much I can really pull from this. But you know, this was done in a hospital that's participated in bundled care payments, bPCI and CGR, and again, this was done before COVID. But do you think this could change or not change our practice across the U.S.? I think obviously we're all moving as arthroplasty surgeons away from discharge to sniff, but this kind of loops in our trauma colleagues and sort of more of these kind of borderline patients.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Meg, for pulling this study here. You know, the take home for me for this is what we've seen with arthroplasty over the last number of years, which is when you get patients home, when you do it in a safe manner, you're less likely to have readmissions, complications, and we do from an arthroplasty perspective. And I know it's slightly different from a, you know hip fracture. We we can prepare for our patients for these procedures. But you know when I started practice eleven years ago, probably thirty percent of my group's patients went to a rehab facility, and seventy percent went home. And I feel like at the U. S. as a whole, it was probably like sixty percent went home, forty percent went to a rehab. That has totally changed over the course of the past decade through different mechanisms. But alternative payment models and bundled payments pushed that movement. I mean, where cost savings were, were getting people home safely as opposed to rehab facilities. Because as the discussion mentions, there are a number of articles that are out there, up to 40 percent of the You know, episode of care can be devoted to rehab facility uh, costs. What it comes down to is in the elective setting, when you can prepare patients for surgery, even if they live alone, getting a family member or a a friend and getting the social network set up before so people can go home, people just do better that way. But there is a small, there's always going to be a subset of patients that need to go to rehab. And, you know, in the hip fracture population, who is that? The significantly more frail, more comorbid patient that oftentimes gets a HEMI as opposed to a total. So it's not surprising that you saw more HEMI patients go to SNPs.
0: More of a teaching point for people that are listening on the call are how hip fractures are viewed in a lot of the alternative payment models. So in CJR, which this study looked at, this was another advocacy win. Uh, again, a small advocacy win for AUKUS, right? We all recognize that hip fractures are not hip replacements for arthritis, right? These patients are sicker, they have more medical comorbidities, they're more likely to go to SNF or use home health than someone who has arthritis. And we know they cost about twice as much. So we were able to fight to get a separate target price and a separate, and now there's a separate DRG for patients who get arthroplasty for a hip fracture. And that took several years of arguing and to same similar with our other points that, that took three to four years for us to kind of get that to, to move. They used to be grouped in and especially during, during COVID, right, when we weren't doing any elective surgeries, but we were still taking care of hip fractures at many places in, in the country for several months, right? Those patients were crushing your bundle because your target price was set based upon the percentage of hip fracture patients that you had in the past. So when your elective surgeries died down, you took care of more hip fracture patients and then you lost more money for taking care of them. So that was another issue. But fortunately, that that was, again, a small advocacy win for AUKUS there.
4: Is it fair to say that arthroplasty is leading our field in some of the developments we've made in these value-based healthcare programs for electives that can now be transferred into our other non-elective or the rest of our colleagues' practices outside of just hip and knee replacement?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, one, we're an easy target, right? We're arthroplasty is Medicare's number one largest inpatient expenditure before they stopped counting it as an inpatient. So 1.2 million joint replacements in this country every year were an easy target, but we could have rolled over, but, but we didn't. We have great leadership within our subspecialty organization at AUKUS and it's not just us. I I know that the shoulder elbow doctors are super engaged with advocacy some of the other subspecialty societies, but I I really do think not only things like having an advocacy committee, but having a separate health policy fellowship, we're one of the few specialty societies that do that. It helps get younger surgeons engaged. It helps get them educated so they can go out to their own hospitals and sit on committees about payment and reimbursement and bundled payments. Uh, And I think AUKUS does a really, really good job of engaging our, our next generation of surgeons.
3: Just a quick question about when you guys talk about having a seat at the table over the last five years and, you know, even decade with your guys' experience in advocacy within AUKUS, what does it look like today for us to, quote unquote, have a seat at the table? I mean, when you're in these meetings, CMMI, or you're talking to Congress people in D.C., I mean, how serious do you feel like they're actually taking us? I mean, how much do you feel like your guys' influence on behalf of our membership actually really gets through?
1: I think it's a great question, Peter, because I would say 10 years ago when I started and I was a health policy fellow, I think the year before Max, there was one health policy fellow. And now there are five a year. We didn't have a lobbying group and a law firm. Uh, so EBG, Epstein, Baker, Green and, and Old Acre was uh, the lobbying firm that give and help construct consistent messaging for relevant issues for AUKUS and our membership issues that impact all of us so having consistent messaging going to meet with congressional members doing it on an annual basis and having you know your points in bullet fashion it's just like going to grand rounds in the morning and having a well thought out presentation being presented of this is the issue this is why it's an issue and this is a solution that we can pose and as Max mentioned earlier, like, so there are 5,200 AUKUS members right now. I think 4,600 of them are physicians. We take care of 50% of the 1.2 million hip and knee arthroplasties that are done in the US. Those are voting age patients, oftentimes, that congressional members are going to listen to. So, It's having that organization, but it's having patient population that really is a voting patient population that does carry weight. And I'm a big believer that you're never gonna have the huge wins that you want. You have to be able to have successful small wins in order to have big wins. And I do think that there have been some small wins that you need to build upon to get to some of these larger wins. Because if you don't, I mean, like you said, if you roll over, like Max said, if you roll over, then what's in jeopardy is the next generation of arthroplasty surgeons and access for our patients for this exceptional surgery. So,
0: And I'll, I'll, I'll chime in to the other thing that it's probably not as fun to talk about, but is just as important is the money and politics is a very very dirty game if you've been involved in any of the fundraisers and again this is nonpartisan. this is both republicans and democrats but you need to have a seat at the table from a financial standpoint too and that's my plug for the academy's pack we're the second largest medical pack we're behind the anesthesiologist but only 20 percent of orthopedic surgeons actually donate to the pack and we are far behind the trial lawyers the insurance companies and the American Hospital Association, which are three other groups that we often have competing interests with. So donating to the OrthoPAC and being involved if you're interested in seeing how the sausage gets made, reach out to some of the Academy OrthoPAC leadership. Your state orthopedic societies are also very involved as well. That's a great resource. They often host fundraisers and events at the state level as well, because the the finance stuff is super important to keep having a seat at the table.
3: Looking forward into the next five years, ten years for arthroplasty surgeons, what are two things that you guys are most excited about and are positive on?
1: I think that we can provide a lot of input for value based care models down the road. I think you know one of the things that it's nice when we meet with CMMI. They mentioned Kevin Bozick by name, so that's good that they have that model and that concept in their mind. That they have an orthopedic surgeon they think represents what potential future for healthcare can look like. And again, it's not for every surgeon, but that's a, a big plus. Is one, I think that there's a lot of data that we put together, AUKUS puts together a lot of publications that helps deliver our message. And so it's a matter of young, engaged surgeons continuing to put out studies that help with messaging, whether it's payment reform, whether it's prior authorization. I think one of the next topics is consolidation in healthcare, and that's a big issue. And we're kind of putting together a task force on that topic currently.
0: Yeah, and kind of to chime in on that, I think, right, we were mostly this call on this podcast has been a little depressing, right? We're talking about reimbursement cuts. We're talking about limitations with access to care. We didn't even get into prior authorization. And again, that can be a whole different, whole different podcast. But to Adam's point, we do have that seat at the table. I think AUKUS as a subspecialty organization, I mean, the Academy is going to be the Academy, and I've given plugs for the Academy pack, but having our our subspecialty society really represent us in a lot of these conversations. And to, to Adam's point, I was a few years behind him 10 years ago doing the Health Policy Fellowship, and there was one fellow each year, right? And now we have five a year, and we didn't have a third party. We have a a law firm, Epstein, Becker, Green, and then we have a lobbyist who helps us work with the legislative side on the Hill, right? We didn't have that. They're coordinating our Hill visits to help us go meet and greet with people in Congress. So I think the leadership of our subspecialty society, having a younger generation of surgeons who are much more educated about these issues than probably surgeons were 15, 20 years ago, and they maybe didn't need to worry as much about reimbursement. So I think we're smarter, we're better prepared, and we're going to be more organized in the next five to 10 years.
2: Awesome, guys. Thanks so much. I think that's a really great end to this with a positive note, if that's all right. And just want to say thanks to everybody for listening. And if you would like to listen to this, we're on wherever you get your normal podcasts. And if you want to hear about a certain topic or anything like that, please email us at joathecut at gmail.com. And look out for the uh, advocacy committee on the August website. They will have information to you on all of these topics that we talked about moving forward.
1: Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. Visit acus.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate,
0: investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement
1: surgery.